For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 26, 2019. The I would like you to do us a favor edition. How could it be titled in any other way? I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Slate, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes joins me from CBS's radio studio. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> what is that? That's like a super 60 Minutes-y, portentous CBS Newsy voice. You can do better Slack than that. Of breakfast. You can be a casual, casual Dickerson. Uh, Emily is absent this week, um, but that's okay. No worries. We have Kirsten Powers, who is, of course, a CNN political analyst and a USA Today columnist and and frequent GabFest host, sub-host. And although Kirsten and I realize we've never met, so you've never no. been on. You've always subbed for me, apparently. I think weren't we I think Maybe we, we were went on, on once, we were but on. you were in another place, we so I only saw you f- far away. Yes. So I'm very happy to be sitting well, here with well, you. She's now, she's now in Washington. We are sharing an extremely uh, humid and hot <laughs> studio, but we're both wearing, wearing very short sleeves. Very summer clothes. So it's okay. On today's Cab Fest, well, guess what we're talking about? We're going to do a double dose of, of uh, Ukraine and impeachment. For our first segment, we'll talk about the substance of what's happening in this incredible Ukraine affair that is breaking instantly, breaking as we speak. And then the second part of that discussion will be about the politics of impeachment and Nancy Pelosi's move to start an impeachment inquiry. And then for our third topic, we will talk to Jody Cantor, the co-author of She Said, the incredible new book about her and Megan Toohey's investigation of the Weinstein affair and the Me Too movement. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. The Ukraine whistleblower scandal is moving so fast and so uh, so sinuously. The facts may have changed dramatically by the time you hear this. As we tape, man, as we tape, I think the DNI, the acting DNI, the acting director of national intelligence, is testifying before the House. Uh, this morning, the House released the whistleblower complaint, which I think Kirsten, you have printed. Is that I do. you have it printed out in front yes. of you? Uh, yesterday, God, was it only yesterday? The White House released a sort of transcript, a quasi description of the July twenty fifth call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Volodymyr. I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to mangle it. Volodymyr Zelensky, in which Trump pressured the Ukrainian to start an investigation about whether Joe Biden had interfered in Ukrainian legal matters to protect his own son and urged Zelensky to confer with the attorney general and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, about this. Um, That call, the whistleblower complaint that uh, goes into how that call was covered up, it all has echoes of mob shakedown. And of course, there's the mystery of the President Trump freezing $391 million in aid that Congress had had, uh, specified for Ukraine. And the reason he froze that aid is not yet clear. Anyway, there's so much happening. So much, so much, so much, so much happening. 
Um, Kirsten, I, I hesitate to to uh, ask you to characterize this, but insofar as you can see this landscape right now, what is scandalous about what's happening and what isn't? Not necessarily what is impeachable. What is scandalous? There's a lot that's scandalous about it. I think that, first of all, it's never happened where you have a president going to a foreign government asking them to do an investigation uh, to help you get reelected and and really blackmailing them, right, using foreign policy, uh, aid, you know, foreign aid to them, uh, which there's really no other reason you would withhold that aid at this point. I mean, the whole point of it is to try and help them uh, protect themselves against Russian aggression. So surprise, surprise, also Donald Trump did something that helps Russia. So there's, there, there's just that is almost interestingly a side story of this. And then for him to have done this, the the lying about it in his, the press conference yesterday. and But now in the whistlebo- whistleblower report, we find out that they actually went out of their way to cover this up. So they they went out of their way to take the notes from the, the, the call and put them somewhere where they, they wouldn't be found, basically. So if you're not doing anything wrong, why are, why are you covering it up? And so I think that it's I'm actually not somebody who's prone to hyperbole or getting over overly outraged even during the investigation over the Russian collusion I was always a little dubious that they were going to find any kind of smoking gun there is a smoking gun here even without the whistleblower whistleblower report Rudy Giuliani has already said publicly that this is what he was doing that they were strong arming the Ukrainians to investigate something um, and then the last thing I would say about it is, what makes it even more scandalous is that Biden didn't ever do the thing <laughs> that they claim that he did and that they want investigated. And nobody who has even read for five minutes about this thinks that he did. John, well, I mean, if you want to answer that same question, I, you can I, answer. I, why do you, sure. My question is sort of why do you think this captured the imagination of, of Democrats and a presidential critic so quickly? Well, the tinder was in the it was in the field, which is to say there was already pressure on the uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to do something. She was – and this is pre-Ukraine. This is just uh, based on the president already and she was doing a pretty good job recognizing that the country is not uh, made up of the same political makeup um, as uh, the Democratic caucus. One of the things we've seen just from a straight up political uh, standpoint – I know we'll talk about that in the second section – but is um, the movement of a lot of Democrats in the House who are in uh, purple districts or districts that are that are more politically uh, risky than the safest ones. So that gives you some sense of how the political landscape has changed. But I think that one of the things is that <clears throat> this all happened quickly. It's quite easy to understand. It's quite um, cinematic. And there is a uh, summary of a phone call that is pretty close to a transcript. Um, and so you have uh, a lot of elements here. And by the way, this the president is at center stage in the collusion matter. It was always um, it was always the president who was at the center stage of the obstruction question, but not collusion. And um, and the obstruction question was kind of uh, fuzzied up by well, he you know this is a guy who's new to politics. He doesn't know about all these funny norms and all of this. This phone conversation happens a day after Robert Mueller testifies. 
So uh, among the many things about this story is that it's a failure of near-miss learning. Near-miss learning is when you, you know, almost crash your car and then realize, I'm, I'm going to put my phone down and not check it while I'm driving. Here, the president, after a two-year investigation into whether there was any foreign influence in an election solicited by his campaign, is then on a phone call in which that seems to be what he's doing. And just to go take listeners through, if they haven't read the transcript, the president starts out this conversation by saying, the United States has been very good to Ukraine. I wouldn't say that it's reciprocal necessarily. Okay, so he raises the idea that the United States has been much better than Europe in helping Ukraine, but it hasn't been reciprocal. The president of Ukraine, who is very well versed and briefed in ways to um, kiss up to President Trump, including using his same language and all of that, um, asks for uh, some additional missiles and military help. And the president, instead of talking on this phone call about anything having to do with the principal issues of national interest, which of which there are several and uh, with respect to Ukraine, and if you want to read about them, the, D- the director of national intelligence has put a threat assessment together of the threats facing the United States. There's a big chunk in there on Ukraine. None of that gets discussed. Instead, the president goes right to two things. One, the question of a server that might be in Ukraine that's related to the Clinton um, election of 2016, and then, and then uh, Joe Biden. Um, and so uh, he basically says this relationship is not reciprocal and then names two things he'd like to have the president of Ukraine take care of for him. And then finally, I think it's worth going back to this idea of a, of a cover-up. As Kirsten said, a lot of the original defense of the president was, including the president's own defense of himself, was, oh, this is a perfectly fine phone call. Nothing wrong with this. That's why we can release... Um, the transcript. But if the White House officials, and there were apparently, according to the whistles, uh, blower report, maybe a dozen on the call, if they if if it was such a non you know a nothing burger of a phone call, why did they get so concerned, as the whistleblower tells us, about the call, and then try to basically hide it? This is before this is ever public. Nobody knows about the call. In other words, it's not to hide something that has burst open and has become a political thing. But this is after the call takes place and nobody knows about it. They think it's so bad that they have to put it in this system about which we're learning now, which is some kind of extra special system, not for national security purposes based on what we know so far, but basically to disappear things that the president has said on some of these foreign uh, calls that are a problem. And we don't know the nature of the problem. But we know that the whistleblower said in the beginning of the complaint uh, that the concern is the president is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. Right. I want to point out one important thing is we refer to it perhaps during this conversation as a transcript. This is not a transcript. There may well be things that are that are missing here. And and this this way may well be bolderized in a way that is beneficial to the president. So let's not let's also not take this as being well, hard to see. Hard to see how it could be worse. Hard to see how it could be good for. I mean, it's well, pretty darn. The, the the summary of the phone call is pretty awful. Well, they could have cut stuff out of it. One thing that that I just want to uh, connect this to is there was also this letter from the publisher of the New York Times, A. G. Salzberger, this week about uh, ways in which the administration had made the life of the press difficult. And there's an example, which is is kind of eerily parallel here, which was that Times got wind that the Egyptian government was going to arrest a Times reporter in Egypt. The Times sort of tried to bring this to the attention of the Trump administration. The Trump administration didn't care. The Trump administration, in fact, was effectively encouraging the Egyptian government to arrest an American reporter working in Egypt, American reporter working for an American newspaper. Another example of this administration 
colluding with a foreign government against what they perceive to be political opponents. And that's genuinely, genuinely chilling. It's genuinely disturbing. The idea that you would, you would, as the president of the United States, as the administration, not seek to protect American lives, American interests, even if they're people who are who might be your opponent, and instead work with nasty foreign governments is is awful. The actions that are inspired by the impulsiveness or the signal sent from the president, this this process of of what we're learning about this um, covering up and putting into these secure servers is created by the behavior of the president. So you have people acting on the things that he does. You see the contagion, I guess, is the – in other words, a lot of the defense of the president over the course of his time has been, well, these are his idiosyncrasies uh, and they exist kind of only in him. uh, But the institution around him is off doing basically the country's business. What what is at at issue here is a whole system that is created – to uh, basically cover up for at least what we're learning now those uh, those problems and carrying out in Egypt and other places the president's wishes. Kirsten, one odd aspect of what's going on here is is Rudy Giuliani is the president's personal lawyer. He is not anyone who has been appointed to any office, not confirmed by the Senate. He is the president's personal lawyer, and there's this commingling of the president's personal legal interests and personal financial interests and personal interest in being reelected and the public interest. And that it appears from a story, I can't remember if this is a Post story or Time story now, uh, that there was a shadow foreign policy mm-hmm. that, that Giuliani was helping to orchestrate against the interest of the National Security Council, against John Bolton, who was sidelined from this, against the entire State Department being sidelined, the ambassador to the Ukraine being sidelined, and that you have effectively Giuliani acting as the president's lawyer, consigliere, carrying out a foreign policy, and the the people who have been designated uh, by the various, you know, by the administration officially to carry out that foreign policy emasculated from it. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, yes. And I mean, and that's something that has caused a lot of concern. And that's also in the whistleblower report that there's this concern about this freelancing. And I do, th- I, 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 you know, Giuliani he, technically is his lawyer and putting that kind of in air quotes, because he's really not lawyering, right? He is he is a political hitman for Donald Trump. And he just basically goes around tr- sort of trying to, to do his bidding um, politically. And so I think that they have inserted political interest in place of what the national interest would be. I, the whole idea of what they're asking Ukraine to do, which is to investigate Joe Biden for something that didn't happen. And it's basically... The idea is that somehow he was protecting his son from investigation when, in fact, what he was doing was the opposite. He was basically trying to get a prosecutor fired who wasn't prosecuting. And so it's the opposite, which makes me wonder, are they just asking Ukraine to manufacture information? Because if they were to go forward and look into what he's asking them to look into, they know perfectly well that that the prosecutor that Biden was complaining about wasn't prosecuting anybody. That was the problem. So that's what I feel like they're doing. I feel like they're basically putting on in Ukraine to say, like, you need to come up with some information that's going to help me get reelected in the same way they want the Ukraine to somehow, you know, convince everybody that they were the ones that were meddling in our election and not Russia. Um, Before we move on to impeachment, John, I just want to turn back to the transcript or the quote unquote transcript of the phone call. And one of the things that you hear from some of the Republican defenders of the president right now is, is, oh, uh, there's no quid pro quo here. Why 
is that is that a reasonable standard? Is that true, uh, or is it that just a that's just a very uh, convenient way to read something where there's obviously a quid pro quo happening? It's just not it's just not spoken explicitly. Like here's what you're going to do corruptly so that I'm going to get this criminal benefit. Yeah, the, well, the, you know, the idea of the the quid pro quo, first of all, it, there doesn't have to be a quid pro quo. Impeachment is shaped by um, the articles they choose and the debate. And the um, while it's got legal aspects in the Senate, it is obviously there's politics and there's um, there's some grayness here. So but um, it needn't be the case that the president says, if you do this, I will do that. Um, but what he does is um, pretty close to that anyway by saying – We've given you a lot. The relationship hasn't been reciprocal. I'd like to ask you a favor. I mean, that's about as usually people are more clever than that. That's actually quite clumsy. Um, and it reminds me of the uh, the quote attributed to Henry II um, with, res- with respect to getting rid of Thomas Beckett. Um, and uh, one of the versions of that quote comes uh, is, will none of these lazy, insignificant persons whom I maintain deliver me from this turbulent priest? And the reason I like that better than the, the usual one, which is, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest, is that it contains that idea of these people around me whom I maintain. In other words, uh, who I give all these things to and there's no re- reciprocity, um, which is exactly what's in this in this phone call. But I think more to the point, I mean, the president, whose key job is national security, this is not in the national security interest of the United States. He's um, putting his personal lawyer, who is not uh, elected by anyone or even confirmed by any body of elected people, in on this um, uh, this job. The attempted use of his pri- of his office for private gain is seems to me to be sufficient um, but now you've got this question of whether there were others in the white house and again i'm struck that the whistle whistleblower says there are a dozen other people and the whistleblower report it should be remembered was put together by without firsthand listening to the summary of the phone call why is that important it tracks with the actual uh summary of the phone call, which the whistleblower has not seen, which means the whistleblower was in contact with enough people that the whistleblower could put together an accurate description of what took place on the phone, which means a lot of other people know that that this exists, which means there are other people who can testify um, to the president doing this and and not only testifying to doing it, but to their concerns, people who work inside the White House, not Democratic hacks, to their concerns that he was doing precisely what the whistleblower is concerned with him doing and as a result went then and took these cover-up measures there's plenty here without there having to be the kind of quid pro quo that would that would never really happen probably in real life anyway. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today, if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and you become a member today, you will get to listen to our segment on Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Scandinavian climate activist. Why does she make so many people so angry? And also, why is she so wonderful and mesmerizing? We will talk about her in Slate Plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's turn to the politics of the Ukraine scandal. So on Tuesday afternoon, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she would or that the House would open an impeachment inquiry, something she had long resisted. There is now, according to various counts done by various media outlets, there's a majority of House members who support this inquiry. Uh, which is not surprising. There's a House Democratic majority. No Republicans seem to report it. The Senate, which would have to convict the president if, if he were impeached by the House, is, of course, still controlled by Republicans. Does not seem likely at this moment that, that <laughs> he's going to be removed from office by a Mitch McConnell-controlled Senate. But I guess stranger things have happened. I can't really think of them, but perhaps. Kirsten, what made Nancy Pelosi change her mind? Why did this affair break the camel's back after so many other straws had been piled on that poor camel? I think because the moderate members that she was trying to protect basically came out and said, we want to move forward with impeachment. And so I think that um, I think that that her, her concern always has been protecting her majority, right? And why did they want, why did the moderate members change their mind? They Well, they say they changed their mind because this is what they were sent to do, you know, to, to stand up and protect, you know, the Constitution and the rule of law. And I think that this is a more open and shut case. It's a less confusing case. And it's, um, and I think the, looking at the, the Russia in, investigation, you know, there wasn't, there was just was a lot of disagreement in the Democratic caucus about uh, whether or not this rose to the level of, of impeachment. And even if it did, that it would probably harm Democrats, right, if they went ahead with it. I think that this is so open and shut and so obvious that it, it would be almost impossible for Democrats to look away and not do something about this. John, at the moment, the polling suggests that the American public, at least, is not particularly interested in impeachment. I think there's a fairly strong, maybe it's like four, 37 to 57 against uh, polling numbers about impeachment. Do you think that is, that's a, an artifact of these polls don't really take into account what's happened with Ukraine? Or do you think that that reflects kind of a public that just doesn't want to decide things this way and would rather just not have to think about this and get, get to an election, maybe? I think probably, I think both, and also a public that's worried about other things in their lives and 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 puts this in the category in part because there's been so much both real and hysterical coverage of the last two and a half years that um, it, there's pro- there, there's a fatigue and also a kind of like w- wake me when this resolves um, feeling out there. So I think there's probably a mix of, of things. Um, and also you haven't had... This has followed up, though the though we should you know it's absolutely clear as everything we've said points out that this is new and extraordinary um, and different from the past. However, anybody who's not paying attention to it too closely hasn't seen the kind of things um, uh, to make it to distinguish it particularly. In other words, yes, you have more Democrats who are in favor of impeachment, but that's not surprising. What you don't yet have in this is um, re- Republicans who are not rallying around the president. There's a lot of rallying around the president. You've had a few comments by, uh, you know, Mitt Romney says this is troubling in the extreme. Um, but essentially, this is sorting roughly along the lines of all the previous uh 
things that have never happened before. And so for anybody who's who's not paying super close attention, they're not yet seeing a charismatic dissenter from the Republican Party say uh, we should go forward with impeachment and here's why or or anything that really breaks the traditional way of sorting these things. I also think that there was sort of an argument before that an election was coming up and so therefore rather than impeaching, you let the, you let the American people decide. What this is showing is that that Donald Trump is taking steps to impede that election, right? So that does change the dynamics a little bit, whereas before um, it wasn't as cut and dry. There were these accusations, but it wasn't, it wasn't just right there for everybody to see. That's an excellent point. Do you think, Kirsten, that Trump wants to be impeached? That Ross Douthat had an interesting column about this, it's, and I think the, the case – I'll just lay out the case for why he might want to be impeached. One is that it has Democrats doing something that's basically at the moment unpopular rather than doing things that are popular, like focusing on some sort of protection of health care or raising the minimum wage or, or, or other things that, that the public might be excited about. Another is that he loves the circus. He just – he's be at the center of attention. This, he just thrives on being at the center of attention. And then third, I think maybe he just priced in the idea that the – Actually, it's always a mistake to attribute any kind of long-term thinking to Trump, but that he might recognize that the half-life of all this stuff is so short these days that that even if today we're thinking about, you know, this is the hugest story and he will surely be impeached, that by next week it will be overshadowed by some other nonsense. Yeah. So the way I, I thought this immediately, actually, what I what I don't know is, is this conscious or unconscious? But he has some sort of desire, and it could be entirely unconscious to... Uh, to, to A, always be the victim, always be being persecuted by the big mean Democrats, because that really resonates with his base as well, because there is they, there's a sense of aggrievement, right? The Democrats are persecuting us because we're Christians. The Democrats don't like us because we're conservative. All this kind of aggrievement politics. And so it definitely feeds into that. I also don't think that Donald Trump functions very well in an ordered mm. society. He needs it to be disordered, right? And so he loses if it's ordered. And so he has to create chaos, and as all demagogues do. And and so I, again, and whether it's conscious or unconscious, I, I can't say. I just know that he is driven to do this, and that on some level, yeah, he wants to be able to say, "Oh, look at Democrats; they can't do anything. They just they're, they're driven by hate. They're just coming after me, them, and the fake media." And that's sort of a storyline that works well for him, and. And people say, well, he should just be running on the fact that the economy is good or whatever other accomplishments he allegedly has. It's like, obviously, he doesn't think that that's how he can win. He thinks he can win by acting like this. Here's where we have where he faces a challenge is that um, that portion of his electorate from last time who didn't like Hillary Clinton and thought they'd roll the dice on him. um, Suburban suburban women, Republican women in particular um are not uh, we, if somebody like John Bolton comes forward and says yes we couldn't get our re- Ukraine policy off the ground because of this fixation the president had on on the Bidens or uh some other person comes forward who is in the traditional Republican party who's not an ever trumper necessarily but um if this, with the process of bringing witnesses forward, with the process of, of um, you know, John Kelly's still out there. John Kelly, remember when he left the office, said um, 
uh, someday the world will – he didn't say exactly this, but he talked about all the things he kept the president from doing. Uh, is that the kind of material that's in this secret server? By the way, one should stop and, and um, meditate for a moment on the fact that it appears there is a White House – kind of um, off-the-books server into which some of these conversations were disappeared um, after we just had an election in which Hillary Clinton's server was such a big deal. Um, but I think there are other people out there who the portion of the Republican electorate that's not in the president's most base of bases uh, that could appeal to them on national security grounds, which is separate in part from the usual Democratic kind of being baited by the president and falling into the trap that we've seen in in, uh, in previous scandals from the administration. One of the things that, uh, that has me puzzled is from a, I think from a Washington perspective, what's going on, what we've learned so far is truly, truly disturbing. You have the manipulation of the political system. You have this vile, the president using, uh, using the power of his office to to bully a valued ally to, for personal gain in order to distort the upcoming election. You have the abuse of an ally uh, in, in a disturbing way. You have the undermining of Congress. Congress has allocated this $391 million for Ukraine, and the administration has decided not to give it in order to, to get some sort of advantage for itself, which as a member of Congress, I would be really peeved if that happened, that I've done something, and then the administration is preventing it. So I can understand why this would be extremely unnerving if you are Abigail Spanberger and you're a, a moderate House Democrat uh, or you're, you're Mitt Romney and you're a Republican senator in this sort of destruction of the legislative power and this undermining of the principle, the sort of basic integrity of the, of the system. But are Americans in general going to be actually interested in this? I don't know. I'm worried about that. Well, I think it's – Historical analogies only go so far just because our world has changed so much. But if you look at Watergate, most people really weren't that interested in it until they had the smoking gun. And then you start to see people, you know, when the tapes Mm -hmm. basically came out, then you start to see people shift a little bit. So the the argument, I think, for Democrats has always been you do the investigation and and you have to bring people along, right? Like out of the gate, they're probably not going to be that interested. But the other other part of that, and actually I'm interested in both of your takes on this because you're both such members of, you know, you're, you're, you're deeply, uh, you know, card-carrying members of, of the media. There is a partisan media today that there wasn't really during Watergate. And there is a counter-narrative that will, unless, you know, Fox somehow has some bizarre change of heart. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There will always be a story, a countervailing story, that people right. who want to support the president are always going to be able to hang their hat on. And so I'm not sure that the ability to move significant chunks of of conservative America or even any chunk of conservative America or any conservative senator exists in this in this media environment. And therefore, I'm not sure that you can project what happened in Watergate happening here. Right. And I think that that's to John's point, which is I don't think he would move conservatives. I think he would move the voters. Democrats would move the voters potentially that John was talking about. Right. Different from Watergate, we don't. We have a re-election coming here that Nixon didn't face. He, Nixon already been re-elected. So the, the so the one thing is whether impeachment goes. You know, we, first we have to have actual vote on articles and all the rest, and it has to get to the Senate. So a lot will have happened between now and then. But then, even if that doesn't happen, this has a political effect, and the political effect may just be 
uh, it, it was for a certain kind of Republican voter. I love what he did on taxes. I love what he did on judges. He has changed the culture of America for 40 years, locked that in. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, and, uh, and a lot of regulations are now gone. He's done good work. Let's send him to his retirement. We don't necessarily need four more years of this. He's done, he's done good, irrevocable work uh, that can't be fixed by a new, even Democratic president. Um, so I think that, that that's a possibility for a certain number of Republican voters. With respect to impeachment, if we play out the drama a little bit more, everything you say, David, about the power of the Republican um, base, which participates in primaries that um, can really uh, kick Republican senators out of office, you do have some people who are retiring. Lamar Alexander is retiring. Um, you do have Mitt Romney, who is uh, a long way from an election and is a little bit more encased uh, in protection from the base of the party. So you, And then you could probably get to the three or four that you would need. I think the calculation for other Republicans, if, we go, if this goes down the road and continues to be real as opposed to um, a fever dream – other Republicans then have to – somebody like Ben Sass, for example, who's been critical of the president, has to make a determination whether in the end this is going to get so bad that you will uh, for all time be associated with not standing up to something. Now, on the other, you know, on the other hand, let's say it goes the other way and you stood by the president when everybody was calling for his head and it turned out to be nothing. Well, that's a, that's a route to glory too. But in this scenario that I'm playing out, it gets all the way to the Senate and seems legitimate, you have to have there, you can imagine one or two, and it doesn't take a lot of Republican senators saying for all time, I, I want to be on the right side of this story. Again, that's under the theory that this is, you know, continues to be very bad for the president. One of the things that, that I'm interested in is we've had administration. And one of the things that some people think the president should be impeached for that has resisted at every turn, turning over documents allowing people to testify. They have prevented investigations, prevented testimony from the House Democrats. And now, if there is an impeachment inquiry, there will be significant demands for, I don't know if there'll be demands for tax returns, but there will be demands that, that officials testify and that documents be turned over. And so far, this administration has refused to do it. What, how do you think that might play out? I mean, are they going to continue to hide everything behind this national security cloak? Will they get away with it? Is the Supreme Court going to involve itself? Would the Supreme Court ever, ever give Congress the benefit of the doubt here? What do you think? I mean, I assume it's going to continue to play out the way that it has played out and that the administration is going to make things as difficult as possible. And when they do testify, it'll be the way Corey Lewandowski testified, where it just turns it into a circus and, and it makes it look like a partisan event. That's the risk of, of impeachment, of, of an impeachment inquiry, is that it just does, that the Trump people do what they always do, which is they turn everything into a circus, into, into the chaos, um, and make it seem more partisan than it is. Look, I'm not saying Democrats aren't acting out of partisan interest, but I do think that there is a sincere concern about this and that I, I really do believe any person who's just being objective and stepping back and looking at this and being honest and checking their, you know, Republican credentials at the door, you know, this is something that has to be dealt with. This is something that has to be addressed. This cannot be something that is normalized and that, that we now say presidents can and do these kinds of things. John, I'm going to give you the last question on this, which is, do you think there is any way this investigation, this impeachment inquiry can be carried out that will be not entirely partisan? 
I, I, not unless, um, and based on based on the the uh, the the, um, the early questioning of DNI McGuire, it looks like uh, it's everybody's playing to type, and and so the answer to your question is no. It'll be it'll be totally partisan. I do I do think again we just everybody has to wait for whether there will be any charismatic dissenters. Um, you know the role that Margaret Chase Smith played, or that uh, Barry Goldwater played, or that Hugh Scott played during the the um, Watergate era, where you had Republican senators. Again, as you pointed out before, not only uh, is there a is there a, a media arm that didn't exist um, with Nixon, but you also have um, the parties have gotten a lot more polarized and a lot more conservative than they used to be, um, and so. Uh, you, you, Structurally, you don't even have really moderate Republicans in any kind of possible way, and you also don't have um, kind of break from the mold conservatives that the way you had with with Goldwater. Some people say that's a good thing with respect to the Civil Rights Act, but also with respect to Nixon, it's a it helped push the impeachment thing along. So I think the only way that it wouldn't go to its normal partisan um, sorting is if you have some uh, Republican who's not, uh, you know, of some stature say, this is real, this is serious, and um, and uh, we'll have to see if that happens. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. In 2017, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey of the New York Times broke one of the most important stories of our time. Their investigation into Harvey Weinstein's sexual misbehavior, assault, harassment, intimidation toppled Weinstein and then opened the floodgates to charges of sexual misbehavior across many industries leveled at many men leading to the Me Too movement and the fall of men like Louis C.K. and Matt Lauer. Now Cantor and Toohey have written She Said, an account of Weinstein's misdeeds, but also, in fact, much more so, an account of how they got the story of those misdeeds by relentlessly finding women to talk and money to follow. And now we are joined in Brooklyn by Jody Cantor, investigative reporter at The Times, and I'm very proud to say former Slate colleague. Hello, Jody, and congratulations. Thank you so much. So... There's so much to talk about in this book, which is a great book, and people should totally get out and read, get out and buy it and read it. But one of the things that's most shocking to me in She Said is not necessarily the grotesqueness of Weinstein, which we all now know about and have processed, but the incredible number of kind of collaborators he had in every place and every way. Why, now as you look back over it, why were there so many lawyers and partners and employees and other people so happy to be his collaborators? And do you think that's something that will change in the future? Will other powerful people have that same level of protection that he's had? 
So before we answer, I just want to say how thrilled I am to be here because, in particular, of the Slate connection. Um, what I what I have to disclose to GabFest readers is that about 20 years ago, I was not a distinguished investigative journalist. I was a very unhappy law school student. And I I wanted to see if I could get into journalism, but I didn't know if I could do it. It seemed very narcissistic to think that I could be the one writing or editing the stories. But I had a friend, Frank Four, who put me in touch with you, David, and I wrote you kind of this – I wrote you and your wife, Hannah, uh, this sort of beseeching – email from my uh, from my little apartment in Cambridge. Um, and lo and behold, you took a chance on me and I became a Slate editorial assistant, which is what led me to becoming a reporter at the Times. And so I just feel very indebted to you permanently and very excited to be here. All right. Wait, all right. I'm going to say thank you to that. And then I'm actually just going to go back at you for one second. And <laughs> okay. then we'll stop the mutual love fest here, which is that Jody had a remarkable quality, and those of you who are who are young journalists or young anything, which is that Jody was, and you can see this in her work today. You, she would come to me with ten ideas, and ten of them would be bad, and I would just send tell her these were ten ideas, and then like two hours later, she'd be back with twelve ideas, and eleven of them would be bad, and then she'd go do the one that wasn't bad, and it would be amazing. And she there was a kind of relentlessness and get back up at it that is incredible, and you see in this book. Anyway, now you can answer the question. So to answer your question, I think that is part of the big question, who protected the women and who protected Harvey Weinstein? And that's part of why we wanted to write the book. There were really two reasons. One is to take you behind the scenes of these events that on the one hand had come to mean so much to so many people, but on the other hand, we knew that the true story of what happened was still in many ways secret. And so that's why we spent a year getting all of this off-the-record information onto the record and, and reconstructing the whole thing so that we could really bring you there with us. But the second reason is the reason you name because there were these – in the moral disaster that is the Weinstein story, there were so many lessons left uh, for the rest of us. You know, when you asked your question, the figure who really comes to mind is Bob Weinstein, who is Harvey Weinstein's brother, and not just his brother, but a co-founder of his companies and kind of his lifelong business partner. Bob Weinstein participated uh, very significantly in the book. He gave Megan, my partner, a bunch of interviews. And and the question that sort of hovered over those interviews was, was why, why didn't you do more? And he had a variety of explanations, including the fact that he had this history that he had never disclosed publicly of substance abuse. And he talked about the fact that he saw his brother's behavior through the the realm of addiction. Bob Weinstein, in in kicking his own alcoholism, had become kind of committed to this 12-step view of the world in which you say, I can't change anybody else's behavior. I can only change my own, which he used, I think, as a a sort of disastrous excuse uh, to ignore his brother's own behavior. But the reason why Bob Weinstein is so interesting is because of that question it poses to the rest of us. What do we do in the workplace when we see wrongdoing? What if we don't actually see it? What if it's more like a rumor? Um, What kind of choices are we going to make uh, and who are we going to try to help? That's a great like segue into what I wanted to ask you about, which is – We've had this big movement, and you and 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 Megan are national treasures uh, in all the work that you have done. And and there's been so many changes um, in a very short period of time. What I do wonder about is 
has it changed enough where people feel comfortable doing exactly what you just said? If you are a person who brings up uh, this kind of information within a company or you go public or you're a woman who uh, you know wants to accuse someone of sexual harassment, do you think things have changed enough where people feel safe to do that? The confounding thing is that in the last two years, everything has changed and nothing has changed. Mm. On the one hand, you can argue that social attitudes are really different. There was this unprecedented series of firings we all lived through, uh, men whose careers really just evaporated all night once the, overnight once this behavior was exposed. Um, I, I think there has been a very private reckoning among a lot of people with past behavior. On the other hand, if you look at our fundamental laws and our systems and the way things work, very little has changed. Sexual harassment laws in this country are so weak. The federal sexual harassment laws, they don't protect you if you're a freelancer. They don't protect you if you work for a business with under 15 employees, just to give you uh, a few examples. The biggest thing that has not changed is the secret settlement system. What we started to uncover during the original reporting, but we uncovered a lot more of during the writing of this book, is essentially the fact that the United States has kind of a secret system for silencing sexual harassment and abuse claims. If a woman goes to a lawyer and says, something horrible happened to me, I need your help, what that lawyer is likely to say is, your best option is a confidential settlement, and you're going to get some money, and you're going to get to keep your privacy, but you're going to have to sign paperwork saying that you're never going to tell anybody else about what happened. And that's what's happened over and over again, not just in the Weinstein case, but we see settlements as an element in almost all of the big Me Too stories. And so what I think we've, we're just beginning to realize is that these settlements have not even come close to solving the problem. And they've also enabled alleged predators to just silence the whole thing and go on to the next victim. But can, can I just a real quick follow up on that, though? Because I've been torn on this, because at the same time, if you're a woman who lodges a sexual harassment complaint, you only want that story told if you tell it on your own terms, right? Because you don't, what you don't want is the company to go around bad-mouthing you and telling other people, oh, watch out for her, she sued us, and, and she's going to sue you. So is there is there a way to do NDAs where uh, the company is actually not allowed to talk about it, and the woman, if she wanted to speak about it, would, would be able to speak about it? That's exactly what some lawyers say, that essentially... What's needed here is privacy, not secrecy, and there is a distinction, and that the confidentiality should be at the discretion of the alleged victim. That we've met a lot of women who signed these papers, you know, 20 years ago, thinking it was the best thing at the time, and 20 years later, they're, they're like, wait a second, I don't have the right to talk about my own experiences. Yeah. J- Jody, I wondered if you have come up with a, a kind of scale of awfulness um, on which you plot behavior. <laughs> and I don't need, mean necessarily of the perpetrators. In fact, in fact, I mean of the enablers because it seems on the one end you have the enablers who hire the lawyers or are the lawyers to discredit those who come forward, who promote the system of secret settlements. Um, 
and that and so there's there's kind of that's at one end and then there's the other thing which which you you started by talking about and i was struck by a quote from mitt romney and romney was asked why uh, no other republicans were speaking out about the president's call with the ukrainian president and romney said i think it's very natural for people to look at circumstances and see them see in the light of the what's most amenable to their maintaining power and doing things to preserve that power and that seems to me to be part of the enabling culture, which is, you know, I don't know. There are these rumors. I don't want to fuss with that. I just want to maintain my association with this powerful person or my position in this company. And that seems to be not on the same part of the scale as the actively awful, but nevertheless a contributory factor. And I just wonder how you've sorted all that. So let's talk about two figures. Let's talk about Lisa Bloom and David Boyes, both very, very prominent lawyers, uh, totally different figures. Fe- Lisa Bloom cuts this figure of like this feminist super lawyer. She is Gloria Allred's daughter. She uh, very loudly proclaims herself to be a fighter for women. And what we discovered in our reporting, we- we've known since the first summer of the investigation that Bloom crossed the line to the other side and went to work for Weinstein. What we publish in this book, however, is this extensive memo that's essentially Bloom's job audition memo for Weinstein. And it's chilling because she's explicitly saying, I will smear on your behalf. I will manipulate on your behalf to counter the allegation of Rose McGowan and other Weinstein abusers. So that's the case of that's pretty – I mean, I think on your scale of – on your sort of scale of the moral spectrum of complicity, I think that's pretty far to one end because she's saying, I'm going to use my credibility as someone who represents women to instead help Harvey Weinstein. David Boys, one of the most famed litigators in the United States, helped get gay marriage passed, litigated Bush v. Gore. What's interesting, I think, about Boyce's work for Weinstein is the duration of it. Lisa Bloom was involved for a relatively small period. Boyce was Weinstein's lawyer for 15 years. And over that time, he helped erase and push to the side and minimize and spin and bury a variety of allegations. And if you look at that time span, that 15-year time span, there are a lot of women who have made complaints during that time. Uh, So I think that's also sort of a serious moral and ethical situation that also raises questions about the limits of legal practice. I mean, how far is a lawyer supposed to go on behalf of his client? Now, what Lisa Bloom and David Boyes have in common, though, which goes to your second point, is that they both wanted to be in the movie business with Weinstein. Lisa Bloom got very excited in the spring of 2017 because Weinstein Weinstein and Jay-Z optioned, who, by the way, I don't think, I I don't know that Jay-Z has ever spoken about what's happened. Um, Basically, her book, which was called Suspicion Nation, uh, was optioned by Weinstein and Jay-Z, and she was very excited about that. David Boyes wanted to be in the movie business as well. And in the book, we actually have emails involving Weinstein helping to get roles for his daughter. So So there you see, I think, just like the attraction and the lore of the movie business and the, the the role it apparently played in the decisions these people made. Jody, this is a kind of weird question, but it really occurred to me as I was thinking about Weinstein. Do you think this story would have had the same impact if Weinstein wasn't such a physically repellent person? 
was that important, the idea of this kind of grotesque-looking monster assaulting young beauties, and that helped make it grab the attention of people? Well, I think where you're really on to something is that one of our editors, Matt Purdy, has made the point that this was the first big story of this kind where the accusers actually had more public stature and credibility than the accused. If you think of the history of these stories, going back to, you know, Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill, and uh, Bill Clinton uh, allegations, it was often the case of this really powerful man being accused by a woman who was somehow of lesser stature. You know, either she just wasn't as important in the culture or you know, her her reputation could somehow be criticized or she was very young uh, or whatever. And I think that there was a reversal in this story where, and this was part of why we felt it was really important to get some of these famous actresses on the record. I worked with Ashley Judd, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Angelina Jolie to go on the record. And I think it became, uh, you know, on the one hand, I hate the idea that a famous woman's word sort of counts for more than a regular woman's. But it's just undeniable that the stars had a kind of special power in this story. Not only are they very respected in society, but people feel really familiar with them, sort of like these celebrities belong to us. And so I I think it kind of goes along with what you're saying in that there's there's sort of a respect and attachment in society to these female celebrities. Yeah, and I think there's also been a lot of talk about if if the you know if the accusations hadn't been coming from white women as well, right? I mean, if it had been um, coming from people of color, would they would have had the same reaction uh, in culture? I, the thing I was wondering is when you go into reporting out a story, you'll always have sort of, you know, an idea of what you're dealing with, right? It, it's You wouldn't be pursuing it if you didn't. But I'm wondering as you got deeper into this, what was the most surprising thing that you encountered or even shocking thing? Um, you know, did you have a moment where you thought, like, I didn't really see that coming? Absolutely. The idea that nobody appeared to be immune In June 2017, we're on like the second month of the investigation, and Gwyneth Paltrow is barely on my list of people to call because I just think she was Weinstein's biggest star. She was completely on a pedestal. You know, her nickname was the First Lady of Miramax, and we all remember, you know, that beautiful picture of her winning the Best Actress Academy Award, and she's wearing that pink dress, and she's standing next to Weinstein. And then lo and behold, I was sort of working um, a network of Hollywood women who were helping me. And one of them said, Jenny Connor um, said to me, uh, Gwyneth is willing to talk to you. And I-, I was so surprised. And then Gwyneth told me this story of sexual harassment. So basically, let me lay out the situation. Gwyneth at, th- at that point is not a big star, but Weinstein has offered her two roles, one of which is really important. It's the starring role in Emma, and it's very clear that that's going to be her big break. Before then, she gets called to what appears to be a business meeting in an L.A. hotel with Weinstein. He, according to her, ends the meeting by placing his hands on her and saying, let's finish this in the bedroom. She is shocked and appalled. She leaves, uh, doesn't comply, tells Brad Pitt, who is her boyfriend at the time. Pitt then confronts Weinstein a few weeks later at an event. 
Weinstein gets incredibly angry that Gwyneth has told her boyfriend what happened. And Weinstein calls her and threatens her and basically says, you're, you're going to screw this up. And, you know, essentially these jobs are on the line if you tell anybody else. He's denied the story, by the way. So that story gets us to the crux in some ways of the Weinstein allegations, which are not just about the kind of physicality and the violence. They're about work and the fact that these women's ambitions and dreams and aspirations are on the line and that he's in some sense using those to he's he's almost like turning those against the women. And then another thing that was surprising to us is that Gwyneth really wanted to help the investigation. So she started to ask us for all these tips on investigative journalism and she set off trying to find other women in Hollywood who would speak to us. So we never would have predicted uh, that that would have happened. Wow. Jody, t- from the journalists and you know there was a long time these rumors were around. Can you tell us a little bit about what, kind of what allowed it to go f- forward? I mean, obviously the Times was supporting you, but I, I but what is also true and this would be true of of any news organization. So I'm not um, saying this about the Times, but if this had been, you know, 1960, 1972, maybe 1981, would they have let a reporter go off and do the dogged and and time-consuming work that you did? So our story really came about because of a bigger New York Times commitment to sexual harassment reporting. Our our sort of immediate predecessor was the O'Reilly story, which I know now seems like it was a thousand sexual harassment stories ago, but it was a really, really, really key one because Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt were able, they essentially came up with a new technique for reporting on these kinds of claims, which is It turns out that Bill O'Reilly had settled, again, sort of paid hush money to a bunch of women uh, to silence their complaints about him over the years. So they were able to reveal that in the pages of The Times using the kind of legal and financial trail to talk about these accusations. And he was fired, which was shocking at the time. It was just completely shocking. And that's when the editors asked what now seems like a quaint question, but was a very important one, which is, Are there other powerful men in American life who have abused women and covered it up? So basically, what happened from there is that we were looking at all of these different industries. You know, we were looking at academia and Silicon Valley, and it was a big Times team with, you know, reporters looking in every direction. People were looking into the restaurant industry, into factories. It was never really about one alleged predator. It was always about a system. And also the fact that we were working together, I think, is definitely part of the answer to your question about what allowed us to finally prevail. You know, we're investigative journalists. So for us, it's not only about getting the -the on-the-record interviews. Obviously, that's very important. But we're looking for documents. We're looking for HR records. We're looking for internal company memos. We're looking for a legal and financial trail. And I think that that really helped finally break the story because it meant that there was less pressure on the women in a way. It wasn't only about them coming forward. They had this kind of mountain of evidence to stand on. So, Judy, one of the things that, that it, this book conveys, and maybe maybe you won't like this characterization, was that you guys had a lot of fun doing this, that it was there's a lot of cloak and dagger. There's this amazing moment when I won't give too much away when a Weinstein executive does just, you know, it's, it's sort of like just as as as, uh, as kind of movie as you can get, as cinematic as you can get with his phone. Um, 
and you have Gwyneth Paltrow's house that you're at. Was it was it super stressful or was it incredibly fun? It's such a good question because I think the sort of like elephant in the room in terms of what you're asking is, Jody, this is a story about sexual assault and 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 the ending of women's careers, you know, so can journalism about that be fun? I think the way I'd answer is to say that fun is is not exactly the word I would choose because the material is just sort of too painful. But I think that you're exactly right in that there was something really galvanizing about it and empowering. It was really, I don't want to speak on my source's behalf. What I hope they would say is that connecting these dots was empowering. It really, like beginning to see the pattern and beginning to understand. There was always this like positive life force aspect to that that I think countered some of the pain of what we were seeing. And and Jody, w- when and how and how much did you think they're coming after me? All these lawyers that that you knew had had taken extraordinary efforts to try to um, discredit these women and to protect. Harvey Weinstein. Well, look, Megan and my attitude is that we live to do this. This is why we get up in the morning. Confronting the powerful is our job. We've got a lot of protection in doing it. We've got the protection of the times. We're much more worried about our sources. You know, I'm going through the summer of 2017 just trying to do this reporting, trying to be very careful, obviously, but not worrying too much about potential intimidation or whatnot. And it turns out that there are all these things happening that I would only learn about much, much later. And some of this, by the way, is thanks to Ronan Farrow, who did the Black Cube story. And, you know, if you read that Black Cube story, it's in large part about us. Black Cube took out a contract essentially on Megan and my head saying, I mean, not to kill us, God forbid, but to kill our story and saying, you know, Black Cube Mm -hmm. was going to get a bonus of hundreds of thousands of dollars if our story never appeared. There was a Black Cube agent who tried to dupe me Um, into giving her information. I had no idea who she was. And I just ended up like brushing her away because she seemed like uh, she seemed like a sort of like random uh, person I didn't have time to deal with. Uh, I was like, I I mean, uh, Megan and I have toddlers. So I, I don't if there are any parents listening to this, you know, it's that attitude of like, I have to get my work done. And then I have to get home to the kids. You know, I don't have time for like random coffees with people who want, you know, uh, with like sort of vague, you know, I, I don't want to sound rude, but I just didn't have time to meet with her. Anyway, um, the um, and then the the other thing that was surreal is that in our reporting for this book, Megan obtained Lisa Bloom's billing records for Weinstein. So it's like this hour by hour record of what she did for Weinstein because mm. that's what lawyers do. They put together these these very itemized bills. And so there there are these items like research Jody Cantor, two hours at $895 an hour. So anyway, I'm glad that I didn't know about what was really happening in real time. But I want this, but also I want this, I really want this to not be a story about intimidation. I want this to be a story about the journalists winning and the women winning because our experience in this specific Example is that you can hire all of these fancy lawyers and you can pay all of this money and you can hire all of these, you know, sort of manipulative PR people. But if if that cannot stand up to the facts and to dogged reporting and to these brave women's voices. 
Jody Cantor is the co-author with Megan Toohey of She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement. It's a great book. Jody, thanks for coming on the GapFest. Thank you so much. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a Harvey Wallbanger. That is not probably a drink that people will still continue to order <laughs> in the yeah. post-Weinstein era. I wonder what that comes from. God. Uh, anyway, when you're having your non-Harvey Wallbanger, what will you be chattering about, Kirsten Powers? So I will be chattering about this um, article I read about a, a book that has come out uh, called Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. Now, John, I know you have a dog that you love, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. And no. no. No dog. No. No dog. So you're a sociopath, basically, right? Um <laughs> Interestingly, I'm not a sociopath, <laughs> strangely. I don't have a dog. <laughs> yes, I'm highly suspicious of people who don't have dogs. Basically, there's always been this idea that dogs just love us because we feed them, right? And, and what, what this um, psychologist found when he did all these studies was, in fact, that's not actually true. They actually really, really love us. And the, how? And you're, you're, I, I can see that you are not buying this, but... They did studies where they, you know, so oxytocin levels spike when you're with somebody that you love, right? And so they studied that, you know, when they put the human and the dog together, and then they studied the levels. And they not only rose in the human, but they also rose in the dog. They also did MRI scans to check where uh, the brain was lighting up. And if they did a signal that suggested food was imminent or seeing your owner was imminent, they actually, the, the brain lit up more at the prospect of the human, um, their, their human uh, being nearby. So I feel like you're very skeptical. I feel like you're looking at me with this very skeptical <laughs> face. 100% right. Yes. So you're not buying this. You think they just love us for the food? I, I'm sure, no, I'm sure they love us for all sorts of reasons. And I, I imagine they have love that is not food dependent. Well, and I, so, I agree with that. Yeah. So the other thing that they found was, so there's also been this assumption that dogs have been sort of very, they call it successful, which I think is kind of funny, but they've been very successful as animals uh, in the sense because they're so intelligent. But then they went and they did studies on all sorts of other animals that are intelligent and found that you can train them to do things, but you can't, they won't ever love you. They won't ever have that kind of interaction with you. So, um, you know, I just, I'm obviously like a huge dog person and I just feel totally vindicated. Um, I was just noticing this morning, I've been away for a few days, and my cats, I have cats, uh, were very attentive to me and like coming and sort of pawing my face in a very affectionate way. Also, my children were also very attentive <laughs> and affectionate. So, so, so maybe, they love you. Maybe they love, they love. John, what is your chatter? Hmm. My chatter is from um, the Twitter feed of Lindsay Fitzharris, who is a, um, ha has a great Twitter feed. She's the author of a book called The Butchering Art, which is about um, uh, Victorian surgery. Uh, but she posted something, a, a 19th century ad, which we will, uh, which people can look at and should look at because of the way it's laid out, for cocorettes. Cocorettes are a mixture of um, cigarettes. They were basically cigarettes made from tobacco and coca from the 19th century. And um, it's just given all of the conversation about vaping um, and, uh, and all of the flavors and, the prom and the, basically the attempt to 
get younger people to vape based on the, the pleasant taste. Um, this made the promise that it would supply the place of food, make the coward brave, the silent eloquent, and render the sufferer insensitive to pain. And then it lists the 10 reasons why it's such a great idea to have them. <laughs> but it slightly undermines the case in, the, in this ad, which lists the 10 reasons, and then has this very odd-looking kind of young woman smoking one, um, the first reason, though, undermines the case of how wonderful these are, which is, first, they are not injurious. And then it goes on. Um, anyway, uh, so um, once you get over the first one, though, the coca is the finest nerve tonic and, and exhilarator ever discovered. It stimulates the brain to great activity. So check out the link and this uh, ad. And, um, and, and Lindsay Fitzharris is actually finding constantly finding fascinating fascinating stuff from the history of medicine um and uh just uh, there's some of it slightly grisly what do you think that when 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 our descendants look back on the advertising of this age what products do you think they're gonna be like oh my god that's hilarious they believe that i think both do you think most vitamins but vitamins aren't super harmful. But do you think Botox is well, going to be... Botox think, isn't super harmful. Well, so that's what it seems like, right? But then I always feel like it's going to be like cigarettes where you look back and they're like, yeah, they were injecting botulism into their heads. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you think, that doesn't really sound good. All right. We'll find out. <laughs> Check back in a century. Uh, my chatter is... I have a secret, incredibly boring vice, um, which is that when I, I just this is just advice about how to fall asleep. So, if you were like me, somebody who's having some sleep problems, uh, can I recommend there is there are now several documentaries, one on Amazon and one on Netflix primarily about car racing culture. There's a Formula One documentary called Drive to Survive, which is about Formula One racing, and there's a uh, one on Amazon called. Le Mans Racing is Everything, which is about the 24-hour at Le Mans race. These are super high-production documentaries about auto racing. It is so incredibly boring that it is the best way you'll ever fall asleep. They've spent millions and millions upon millions and millions of dollars to produce these beautiful documentaries about auto racing, which is the most boring, reprehensible sport <laughs> populated with people who are wasting their lives, polluting the planet. All the fans are... Like it's just rich people wasting a huge amount of money in places where you wouldn't want to go because you could only get there on your yacht, and it's uh, it's the culture is terrible, the drivers are terrible, the way the money is being spent is terrible, the races look super boring, and it's and yet these documentaries are are addictive and mesmerizing in their boredom. So good good uh, good narcolepsy. Also, listeners. You have been sending us your chatter. You've been tweeting chatter to us at, at SlateGabFest. So many good chatters. John, you want to listen carefully here. You're going to want to listen carefully to our listener chatter this week because Fuzzy Marmot at, at Real Fuzzy Marmot, who I also think has given us some chatter before, points us to another story of a marine mammals encountering Russian military forces. There's a walrus, or in fact, several walruses attacked and sank a Russian Navy boat in the Arctic this week. It's a wonderful story. You got to go check it out. There's some, it wasn't, it wasn't a big boat. It was a small boat. It was sort of more like one of those, those inflatables that you, that when you're, when you're in your boat, 
in harbor, you're anchored and you need to get into the and beach yourself so that you can do whatever you're going to do uh, on land. You take one of these inflatable boats with 10 people on it. And it was. What's their beef with the boats? Why not? Wouldn't you wouldn't you be pissed <laughs> off? These dumb boats are coming and messing with you. And so the walruses were just like, hell no. And they they took this boat and there's this and they they took it apparently they took the boat they like they they seized the boat and then the the russians managed to get it back <laughs> that's amazing but, uh, it's a great story so please keep sending us your chatters at at slate gabfest please send them to us that way that's our show for today the political gabfest is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is bridget dunlap we had engineering help from melissa kaplan here in dc merrick jacob in new york and Rachel Peer in also in New York with John at CBS. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet your chatter to us there. For John Dickerson and Kirsten Powers, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, so overshadowed, unfortunately, slightly overshadowed by the 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 impeachment news of the week was the climate uh, discussions here in the U.S. and particularly the presence of Greta Thunberg, the Swedish 16-year-old climate activist who is a kind of incredible, compelling presence. Did you see, Kirsten, the the that little clip of her in the background as Trump came in to talk mm-hmm. and there was this... So there's a pick. There's this. So Trump is coming in to say whatever stupid remarks he's going to say at, at this client. I think at the climate conference. Anyway, she was in the back of in the back, and this camera person caught her and then moved to Trump. And you just see this look on her face, and the look it killed. The look literally could murder somebody. Her look of disgust and rage at watching Trump enter was incredible. But she gave this this very very powerful, extremely extremely powerful speech just attacking attacking us attacking everybody attacking all adults not just the ones who are say that climate change doesn't exist but those who are say it exists but are unwilling to to make any hard choices there's the the you know you've stolen my dreams in my childhood with your empty words we're in the beginning of a mass extinction all you talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth how dare you and she's just her presence is gripping but she also enrages people. Why does she enrage people? Well, I think the people that seem enraged by it are people who don't want to talk about this issue, right? They don't want to hear about climate change. And so instead, they they have to attack her, basically. And, and she's not just, as you said, she's not just criticizing climate change. I mean, she's, she's criticizing the whole system. She's criticizing capitalism. She's um, she's prophetic, honestly, is, is the way I look at her. I mean, I think she's, she's speaking real truth. And... A lot of times people don't like that when that happens. And so you have a, particularly conservatives attacking her and basically saying, oh, she's just a pawn and she's just a prop. And, um, you know, we shouldn't listen to them. Rich Lowry wrote in his column, um, kids have nothing to teach us. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.